Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. All right, we are, uh, we are looking at the subject of eschatology. And I mentioned, uh, I mentioned last week we're going to do a variety of things. I gave a, a very broad overview last Wednesday night. For those of you that missed, it should be up as a podcast that you can download and listen to where you find podcasts if you missed last week. Uh, and, and then the next four weeks, let me share how I've broken this down. I've kind of given an overview, and then we're going to the very end and kind of starting over. And here's what I mean. We're going to talk about judgment and hell tonight, and that's really the final piece of the eschatology puzzle that we're going to look at. But I've chosen to put it here because uh, it's a heavy topic. It's one that I think should undergird all the other things we talk about and think about, and I, I pray... My prayer is, uh, based on the way we look at this tonight, that it will deepen our desire for people to come to know Christ, uh, deepen our burden to pray, uh, and then next week will be more encouraging. We'll talk about heaven and, uh, and what we can look forward to as followers of Jesus. The week after that, we'll look at the millennial views and, and, and all the different options there and, and try to make sense of what we find in Scripture in those particular uh, subjects. Let me remind you of the three overarching principles that we talked about last week. I'll just go through these quickly. One, the Hebrew linear view of history means that the world is advancing toward a particular telos or particular end. Um, I would say that you and I as Christians need to enlarge our perspective on the subject of what is to come because we're dealing with thousands and thousands of years of biblical history of what is behind us. So instead of just seeing the eschatological positions as something that you and I need to fit, uh, focus our minds on for our lives, our situation, our circumstance, I think we need to broaden our view of that and remember that, that God spoke. This is the beauty of God, by the way. He can give us a book like the book of Revelation and it be intensely, directly meaningful to the original audience 1,900 years ago, Right? It meant something for them. And for the last 2,000 years of history, the book of Revelation has been an encouragement and a strength to the church, and it still is a strength to the church today. And there are lots of things in the book of Revelation that we struggle to understand and interpret. And that was true 1,900 years ago, and that is true today. And yet God's word proves faithful and encouraging and has proven faithful and encouraging for 2,000 years at least of New Testament history and 3,500 years of entire biblical history. That should encourage us. That it was written to encourage people years ago and it still encourages today. Let me also remind you of this. We would be wise to hold our eschatological perspectives a little less tightly than the other main doctrines of the Bible. There are a whole variety of positions. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. A general order of eschatological events... I've put this in just to kind of set our framework, what we're doing. Jesus' return, that is the parousia, when he comes back, that's the next thing we're waiting on, okay? We'll deal with that specifically in a few weeks. The resurrection, that's the resurrection of, of sinners to judgment. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight. It's the resurrection of saints to eternal reward where body meets soul and God reunites us. That is what happens after the return of Jesus. The final judgment happens after the resurrection. We'll see that here in a moment in the book of Revelation. And then hell or the lake of fire, final judgment, that topic that we're going to look at tonight, 
that is what happens after the final judgment, or at least the lake of fire happens after the final judgment. So that's the general order of eschatological events, and I'm kind of starting backwards. Instead of dealing with when the return of Jesus and millennial views, we're starting at the end. Final judgment, we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at heaven next week, and then we're going to look at the millennial, millennial views. So, uh, several clarifying passages. Uh, I'm going to read these and just comment on them briefly just to make sure we're on the same page. Let's look at the last one first. Look at Revelation chapter 20 for a moment. This kind of sets the framework for where we are. It's the topic in your scripture, it may say, the thousand years, which we'll deal with specifically in detail. I know you got some questions about that, so do I. We'll try to answer those in a few weeks. But if you will look at verse 4 for a moment. Uh, John said, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, blessed and holy, as the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's where we want to be, by the way. We want to be participating in that resurrection, uh, the resurrection to glory and blessing. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to deliver them, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Catch that phrase. They were judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the final destiny of those who have not come to faith in Jesus is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Hell, as we think of it today, the place of judgment or the place of waiting, that's going to be a death in Hades, that place. It's going to be thrown into the lake of fire permanently. So that's what the book of Revelation teaches. So that's a, it's an important passage of Scripture for us thinking about the final state. There are plenty of other places that we could look that, that teach on that. Let me look at two more. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 is a passage relating judgment. Paul talks about it with relation to the judgment that, that Christians will face. Uh, our type of judgment that Christians will face. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, 
I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone's, excuse me, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work uh, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he w- himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's a, there's a clear indication that the, the final state of Christians and non-Christians alike is going to be a state where we, that, that we experience through judgment. Okay? Now let me clarify this. The great white throne judgment is for those who do not have a relationship with God. The judgment that, that Paul talks about here, now I will say this, it could be one and the same. And what I mean by that is it could be one judgment that God does for everybody. We can debate that. There are discussions. We'll talk about that. But at the very least, as Christians, what we're going to do is God's going to look at our works in our life. Now, he's not judging us for our sin. Let me make that abundantly clear. Our sin was judged on the cross. Okay? We're not going to have to stand before God and give an account for our sin because if that were the case, you and I wouldn't make it to heaven. Okay? Our sin has been dealt with. But what this is, this is a judgment for how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. The things that we put our time, effort, energy, money, uh, passions, pursuits into. It's like the things that we do are either going to be precious, gold, silver, and stones that if you put through the fire are only refined. Or they're going to be things that are wood, hay, and stubble. If you put wood, hay, and stubble in the fire, what does it do? It burns up. And it's, it's worthless and nothing. And that's the way Paul illustrates that. And that's what you and I are living for. We're living for either the things that last or the things that don't last. One more text of Scripture that, uh, that we're going to look at just kind of briefly tonight is Matthew chapter 25. It's in the section of Scripture that deals with uh, the, the Jesus talking about his return. Chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew we're going to look at at different times over the next several weeks. This particular text of Scripture is about the judgment. So the final judgment beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate the people for one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. So this is depicting the final judgment of God with all of those in the world, whether you're sinners or whether you're saints. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? He will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what the text says about judgment. So what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? Let me offer some theological considerations, just some things to wrestle with. The subject of hell and judgment has been a topic for, um, for debate and trouble. And, and I mean that in, a, in a, as careful a way as I can say that. It is a troubling topic. It's one that should challenge us. John Calvin put it this way, no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked. We ought to especially fix our thoughts upon this, how wretched it is to be cut off from all fellowship with God. And not that only, but so to feel a sovereign power against you that you cannot escape being pressed by it. It would be more bearable to go down into any bottomless depths and chasms than to stand for a moment in these terrors. What and how great is this to be eternally and unceasingly besieged by him? Other commentators and thinkers over the years have wrestled with the doctrine of hell. It is a terrible doctrine. Um, Some of you have been in revival meetings and been at churches where you would say that the preachers and revivalists preached hellfire and brimstone. And you've heard some of those sermons. Some of you have walked out of those experiences terrified. Um, I have. I, I heard some of that preaching when I was growing up. Whether you hear a hellfire and brimstone preacher or not, the subject of hell should terrify us. It is troubling. It is challenging. It is disconcerting. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that, that folks have, have, have questioned it or challenged it. So here are four theological considerations that we'll at least look at tonight. The first one is this question, who receives judgment and who receives reward? So, so what is it that the Bible teaches about those who are blessed? And what is it the Bible teaches about those who, are, uh, experience, who experience judgment? Uh, we talked about this several months back. But, but one of the options of this particular question are, are the subjects of who gets to make it into heaven. And there are a variety of positions about that. The idea of universalism is that at, at some point everybody makes it into heaven. God will just save everyone. The, uni, the Unitarian Church holds this particular view. Different theologians throughout uh, history have held this view. The problem with universalism is this... That, The gospel is universal in its extent, meaning that the gospel is available to any and all who would hear the message of the gospel and respond to Jesus. But it is not universal in its application, meaning that everyone by that extent is automatically converted and saved. The Bible just does not teach that. It it does not. If if I had to say, man, I I wish everybody made it to heaven, I, I do wish everybody made it to heaven. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that there is a specific way in which people make it to a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. 
The idea of universalism is not taught in Scripture. Another option would be pluralism. This has been popularized in a variety of different ways. One particular proponent is a man by the name of John Hick. Basically, he says that the different religious expressions are different pathways or means to get to God, and so you get to reward. Basically, it makes all religions the same. The problem is we have competing truth claims. For those who are Muslims, they believe in Jesus. Did you know Muslims believe in Jesus? They just believe that Jesus is a prophet. He's not the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's not the Jesus we believe in. He is a prophet, but he is also the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so you cannot have two different truth claims that are equally true at the same time. That, that does not work. So pluralism is a flawed approach to looking at the variety of religions. Another option would be inclusivism. This is where you can be a Christian, but not know it. This is the Roman Catholic Church position, that there are a lot of people out there who genuinely have some sort of faith in God or a higher power, and they'll make it to heaven even though, or make it to eternal reward, even though they may not make it directly through Christ or explicitly through Jesus. The problem with this position is, again, it's just not, it's not taught in Scripture. The, the position that the Bible teaches is the fourth one, which is exclusivism, which means that salvation is only in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no other means by which forgiveness can be, can be experienced. And the reason for that is because of the terrible reality of our own sinfulness. We need a forgiver of our sin. That'll be more clear in a moment when we look at our theological takeaway. Let me, let me go to the next theological consideration, and it, is, it would be the questions of compatibility. And these are some of the challenges to the doctrine of hell. I'm going to walk through several of these. Here's the first one. Is everlasting judgment compatible with God's justice? So, so some would say, is God really just to send someone to a, 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 a place of damnation and separation forever? That's the question. And some have questioned, hold on a second, if God is really just, it, it, it does eternal separation have to be eternal? I mean, why, why couldn't it just be partial or temporary or for a period of time? And, and there's some different ideas there. Well, here's the reality. God is perfectly just. You and I may be somewhat just. We may be able to offer right judgments about certain things. But you and I are not completely righteous. God is absolutely just, and he's absolutely holy, and he's full of love. So here's the reality. Whatever the Bible teaches about the justice and love of God, whatever he does with your soul or with the soul of someone else, God is absolutely just. No one will be able to say to God in eternity, you did the wrong thing, you punished me unjustly. No one will be able to say that. The justice of God is depicted throughout the entirety of Scripture. If you read your Bible, Genesis through Revelation, do you know one of the primary themes that runs the gamut of Scripture? It's the theme of judgment. In Genesis 3, the snake was judged, Adam and Eve were judged, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. A couple of chapters later, the whole world was judged at the time of the flood. The world was judged again and the confusion of the languages at Babel. You look through the rest of Genesis, there was judgment over and over again. You look through Exodus, there was judgment of Egypt. 
You look through the Old Testament, the people of Israel were judged over and over again. And then God judged the people that he used to judge the people of Israel. And then the New Testament Gospels, judgment is, it permeates the story of the Gospel. Jesus took judgment. And you get the book of Revelation, judgment's all over the book of Revelation. Why is, ju- why is judgment and justice, why does it permeate Scripture? It's because we're sinful. God is just and righteous and holy, and he's the only one that can bring about justice. There's another reason why we need to grasp the idea of justice. Some would say that eternal punishment is too much. But here's what I would push back. Even we as humans long for there to be some form of true justice for those that didn't receive justice here. Now, some of you may have some relatives that that were pretty good people, but they did did not know Christ. And that's something to be troubled about, to be worried about. But we also know of people, like Adolf Hitler, who were evil, wicked to the core, probably uh, demonically oppressed. He didn't receive judgment here in this world. He took his own life. So if there's no God who justly judges the wickedness and depravity of a sinner like that, then do we really want that God to be in control of everything? No. We want a God who's going to bring about justice, true justice for evil, vile sinners like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or others who have perpetrated such vile crimes against humanity. Child molesters, I mean, you go on down the line, people that, that miss it in this life, they don't get judged in this life, they get by with it. Well, the judgment of God as depicted in Scripture means that they will not forever get by with the sins that they've permeated, that they've committed. Another question is God's, is everlasting judgment compatible with his love? Isn't God so loving that he won't judge forever? He's so loving that he will judge. Some of you uh, know some people that are too loving. It means they get run over. They get walked over. They, they, never, they never have a line that that person can cross. They're always, they're all, I mean, they just give up and give over and give up and give over. Do you realize that that's not real love? Real love has a line and a limit. Here's why. It has to have a line and a limit because otherwise you could get by with anything. If God were so loving that everybody got to heaven just because, then God wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be righteous. And it would make the cross the most vile sin against any person that has ever existed. The cross is a depiction of both love and justice. God made a way for all sinners to be forgiven, but in so making a way, he also made a way for all sin to be judged. And so God's love can't just carte blanche without any qualification accept you in and say, I love you and I'm just going to forgive you. And, and it doesn't matter what you do or who you can. It can't work that way. And that's not the teaching of Scripture. God's love... His love for you and for me and for those who he has redeemed, his love requires justice or it's not really love, not legitimately love. Ask another question. Is God's uh, is everlasting judgment compatible with his victory? 
Now, one of the things we're going to talk about over the course of the next several weeks on Sunday mornings is the concept of the kingdom of God. Uh, let me say this outright, God rules. Okay, God reigns. He is in charge in our world. You may say it doesn't look like it. Well, he is in charge. And one day, what the book of Revelation teaches is that his rule and reign, he is going to become the king of the kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world, the book of Revelation says in chapter 11, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. There's coming a day when he's going to set up a rule and reign over all things. And his judgment is an aspect of his victory. It's a declaration of his victory. God wins by bringing about judgment into our world upon sinners and upon wickedness and upon depravity. Some might have questioned, is God's, uh, is everlasting judgment compatible with his grace? Grace is unmerited favor. If God is so full of grace, why in the world doesn't he just show grace to everybody? Again, blanket grace. He did show grace. Jesus Christ is the perfect depiction of grace. The book of John says it this way, he is full of grace and truth. Grace comes through Jesus. God, God offers, and this is for any person on planet earth. I want you to hear this. It doesn't matter what you have done, 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. It does not matter what you have done. It doesn't matter who it is on planet earth. There is grace available. But God is the one that defines how you come to that grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Otherwise, it would be some kind of earned way into, into an expression of salvation. God makes grace possible for anyone, but he makes it possible through Jesus Christ. He's the one that organizes, that has orchestrated and articulated the means by which grace is accepted. And if grace is received by us, then it means for those that don't receive grace, there's got to be some kind of consequence or result. And according to Scripture, that consequence or result is judgment. To give you uh, another theological consideration, something that's come out over the years, it's the subject of annihilationism. It's on the screen if you want to write it out. This is uh, the idea that essentially those who who suffer uh, separation from God are eventually destroyed. Meaning that, that they may exist in punishment for a period of time, but then eventually everything that they are is wiped away. And it, is, it uses a very, it interprets the section of scripture. There are a couple places in the gospel accounts where there's the, the, the idea of, of hell or eternal life or, or eternal damnation rather being a destruction. And that word is used. And it's a very literal interpretation of destruction, meaning that it goes away, that you go away. One particular proponent uh, over the years of this particular perspective was a, a, a thinker by the name of John Stott. I actually wrote my doctoral dissertation on John Stott. He was an Anglican uh, pastor and thinker. He was a close friend of Dr. Billy Graham. Uh, they worked together with the Lausanne movement and some other things back in the 60s and 70s. John Stott held to annihilationism and primarily because he struggled with the concept of hell. Here's, here's one of the ways... Um, that he said this. Emotionally, I find the concept of hell, that is eternal separation, I find the concept intolerable and do not know how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are fluctuating, 
unreliable uh, guide of truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. Uh, he, he went on to write, When Scripture teaches, I believe, although with tears, that the wrath of God on evil, torment of the unsaved during the intermediate state between death and resurrection, and the fearful weeping and gnashing of teeth, when judgment is pronounced and the unsa- unsaved learn their fate, he said, I also affirm, and I think as anyone, that it is, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and, and to struggle with the topic of eternal punishment. He goes on to say, the, debates, the debate concerns not the eternity, but the nature of the punishment, whether the wicked will endure conscious torment forever or be annihilated forever. Now, the reason John Stott came to this particular position is because he wanted to hold a high view of Scripture. He did in, in most of his theological kind of uh, uh, positions. He held a very high view of Scripture. He looked at it, he read it, and he said, this is terrible. The doctrine of hell is terrible, especially hell as eternal separation from God. Folks, it is terrible. It's probably the hardest and heaviest thing that the Bible talks about. The reason John Stott struggled with this position so much is because his father never converted. He died, to John Stott's knowledge, without Christ while John Stott was on a preaching tour um, out of the country. And so, personally, he wrestled with his father never put his faith and trust in Jesus and, and, and John Stott wanted to not believe that his father was suffering an eternal punishment. Like in the sense of judgment forever and forever. Uh, I'll be honest with you. That is a position that is, uh, what's the word? Potentially enticing. Right? It's just not biblical. The Bible does not say anything of the sort. Matthew 25. The passage of scripture we read. 46. These will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Jesus' own words. If it's life eternal, it's punishment eternal. The exact same word means the exact same thing. Punishment that is eternal. Annihilationism is just not taught in scripture. A fourth theological consideration is the idea of conditional immortality. That is, there's a similarity with annihilationism. Conditional immortality is that only those who believe in Christ are granted life eternal, meaning that, that our humanity is immortal based on the blessing and gift of God. Um, immortal in the sense that we live forever. Again, the problem with conditional immortality as much as it tries to make sense of the doctrine of eternal damnation, the problem with it uh, is quite simply the Bible does not teach it, at least teach it in a way that we can count on that to be the hope. That those of us that are in Christ will live forever, but those who are dead apart from Christ will at some point not exist, not exist in separation from God. I mean, let's look at some takeaways and try to make some sense of this. Here's the first one, and this is uh, in some ways the, the most important one. To ignore the biblical doctrine of hell is to misunderstand the holiness of God and or to minimize the depth of human sin. 
So here's the issue, okay? People are not separated from God forever because they didn't hear the gospel and respond to Jesus. People are judged for their sin because they are sinners. The issue in Scripture from Genesis 1 all the way through the book of Revelation is that humans, us, we are sinful in our will, in our choices, in our behaviors, in our desires. And the entirety of Scripture testifies to this. The book of Romans, Paul talks about this clearly. Jews are sinners, they had the law. Gentiles are sinners, they didn't have the law. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter what background you come from, what your parentage is, what your heritage is, what your belief system is, where you grew up, where you were born, what church you go to, what mosque you attended, uh, what, what religious expression you came from. Every single person born into the world is born into sin. And the issue of judgment is not about opportunity or what we've heard or what we've responded to. The issue of judgment is about whether or not we're sinful. And the reason that that matters is because we, as humans, we undercut the doctrine of God's holiness. We minimize it or misunderstand it. We don't think about God being as holy as he is. Folks, I just want to tell you something. God is more holy than you and I can ever dream or imagine. When we stand in the presence of a holy God, we're not going to walk up to him and give him a fist bump. That, that's not, he is holy to a degree that you and I will only experience when we step into his presence in, in, in eternity. And the other thing that, that this doctrine helps us not to do is minimize human sin. We talk about having an affair when God calls it adultery. We talk about shading the truth when God calls it a lie. We talk about, I, I just, I, I mean, I just spoke out of turn. When we spoke in anger, we find it very, very easy as humans. What do we do? We minimize. We make ourselves sound a whole lot less bad. But heaven help the person that cuts us off in traffic. Heaven help the person that wronged us. Heaven help the person that lied against us because, man, they are terrible sinners. A little bit of levity doesn't hurt in a heavy topic like this. One of the things I do when I talk to kids about receiving Jesus, I ask them if they know they're sinners. And every kid with a sibling knows that their kids, their siblings are sinners. And the ones that I know <clears throat> have come to know Jesus realize that they are too. Listen, we cannot minimize human sin. The problem with our children and grandchildren, the problem with our neighbors, the problem with the nations who haven't heard the gospel is not primarily that they haven't heard the gospel. That matters. They need to hear the gospel. The problem is that they're sinners. And the only means by which forgiveness can happen is through the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of God. So we cannot minimize human sin and we cannot misunderstand the holiness of God. Let me give you a second takeaway. It's the worship takeaway. The doctrine of hell depicts the holy wrath of the one true God. It invites, I put in parentheses, it demands reverential fear. Jesus said it this way. 
Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. All doctrines about God should drive us to worship because they express the greatness and majesty and glory and wonder of God. The doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell should cause us to fear God. Not in the sense that we should cower, in the sense that we should cry tears of joy. See, you and I will not experience the judgment of God if we're in Christ. Because Christ experienced the judgment of God for us. A God that will do that for us is a God to be adored, a God to be worshipped, and a God to be feared. The truth of what the Bible teaches about judgment in hell should make our Christian faith more real, not less. It should make it more effectual, not less effectual. It should make us realize that there is something permanent that matters. Our own soul and the condition of those who don't yet know Christ. Leads us to the last takeaway. It's the evangelistic takeaway. If we take the Bible to be true and authoritative, we must pray and share the gospel that those who do not believe may come to know Christ. For more than a year now, we have looked at different doctrines of Scripture. We started with the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. We spent about nine or ten weeks working through that, that set of doctrines. You can go back and listen on our podcast if you didn't catch all of that. But as you're sitting here today, as you hear me and Pastor Tad preach... As you hear Sunday school classes teach, as you hear Bible studies, women's and men's studies that talk about the, 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 the teaching of Scripture, we come to that with a sense of humility that God knows what he's talking about. We surrender to the truth that God has said, and we submit to his authority. Okay, If that's what we believe, and we believe that the Bible teaches that there's forgiveness for those in Christ, and that there's judgment for those who don't know Christ then we are too silent. The doctrine of hell and judgment should drive us to our knees in prayer. It should drive tears to our cheeks for those who don't yet know Christ. And it should open our lips to tell the gospel to those who are lost. It is too drastic a doctrine for us to just sit in church haphazardly and apathetically, without it permeating the way that we communicate the love of Christ and the goodness of God to others. There's a story that kind of gets at this. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It's happened uh, a little more than 10 years ago. The, uh, the comedy act, or illusionist act, Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn Gillette is an atheist, uh, does not believe at all in God. After one of his shows, a, a gentleman came up to him, and uh, he said, I'm a businessman, I'm, I'm not crazy, I'm proselytizing, I want you to know about my Jesus. And he handed Penn a Bible, and it had some uh, kind of a note in it, and here's Penn comment. Atheist, non-believer, here's what he said. It was really wonderful. 
I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive. He looked me right in the eyes, and he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was kind. He was nice. He was sane. He looked me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me this Bible. And Pendulette goes on, and he said this in, a, in, a, in an interview that he posted on, on the Internet. He said, I don't respect it at all if you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going there to eternal life or whatever and you think it's not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep, me, keep your religion to yourself. He said this, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed with a shadow, beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's an atheist commenting on someone who was trying to tell him about eternal life. Not everybody feels the way Pendulette does. I'm sure you've been around folks that have shut doors in your face, don't have any interest in hearing the gospel. I have. I've talked to those folks. But if the Bible, excuse me, the Bible does teach that there is eternal life and eternal judgment. If you and I believe that, and folks, we must not remain silent. Bottom line, we must not stop praying. It's not our job to save and convert. I can't, I, I've got friends of mine I, 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 that I set up appointments with, I sit down and talk with. I, I, I've talked with them more than once, and I want them to know Jesus. If I could change their heart, believe me, I would have already done so. Yeah, I can't change their heart. That's because God's the one who saves. But I'm not going to stop talking to them. I'm not going to stop praying for them. Neither should you. Here's what I'd like to ask of you as we, as we finish out tonight. I would like this, kind of, this talk, this, this lesson tonight, to kind of undergird the way we think about everything else with regard to eschatology. Sure, how we get to the final judgment, what we make sense of that, absolutely. We need to understand that. We need to be encouraged by it. We need to be challenged by it. And we're going to work through those things over the next few weeks. I know you came in with some questions. Some of you have got some questions about how are all these things going to work out. You've listened to the Jack Van Impey's and the David Jeremiah's and, and people in the, the Red the Left Behind series and, and some of those things. And how is it that, that really the, the final pieces of the puzzle are going to play out? Those are important questions. We're going to try to talk through some of those. But when all is said and done, the only thing that ultimately matters for you and for me and for everybody else in the world, is whether or not we're going to be resurrected to eternal life or resurrected to eternal judgment. How we get there, it, it, is, it matters, but it matters less than the final place of where we get. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I would like to ask you just to make more time to pray for those who don't know you, Jesus. To stop delaying making that appointment with that person, call them up tonight, shoot them a text message and say, hey, let me take you to coffee or lunch. I just want to tell you, 
something that God's done for me. Stop waiting. You say, how do I do that? How in the world do I tell someone about Jesus? You just do. You just do. You just look them in the eyes and you tell them there's a God who loves them. You say, I want you to know the same Jesus that I know. Are they going to come to know Jesus in that moment? I don't know. Maybe not. But I tell you what, if you make that appointment and you talk to them and you tell them that Jesus loves them, guess who's not going to bear the weight of their decision? You're not. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there's not going to be a person in hell that didn't really choose to be there. Here's the bottom line. You're either going to choose to surrender to God and walk with Him, or you're going to choose to build your own kingdom and do your own thing. Everybody in this world that has not chosen God has chosen themselves. That's heartbreaking. That is devastating. But they're not there because God made that decision for them. They're there because they made that decision themselves. Our job is to invite them to know the Jesus who offers them salvation and forgiveness and not eternal judgment, but eternal life. We'll talk about the encouraging part of that next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 